Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Kevin McCarthy playing an intense version of Let's Make a Deal. The lead starts right now. Promises and concessions as Kevin McCarthy's bid to become House Speaker comes down to the wire and a group of Republican hardliners continue to push their demands. Plus, those tragic Idaho college murders, how police tracked down a suspected killer through DNA evidence, the web, and his Hyundai Elantra, and air pressure. Passengers still trying to get their bags back after a holiday travel meltdown. How easy is it to get a refund if you were a stranded passenger? The points guy is here with answers. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We begin today in our politics lead. Time is running out for House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy and his dreams of wielding the speaker's gavel, making the possibility of a brutal floor fight increasingly likely. And that's something that has not happened in the United States since 1923. Right now, McCarthy is in deal-making mode, we're told, working the phones, trying to win over holdouts, giving in to some demands from some of the most extreme MAGA members of the House Republican Conference, including agreeing to lower the threshold on the motion used to oust a House Speaker. But with just hours to go before the vote, five Republican no votes, along with nine additional McCarthy skeptics, are making it clear that even with the concessions McCarthy's offering, They're still not sold. McCarthy can only afford to lose four House Republicans. That's if all House members cast votes tomorrow. Despite this, McCarthy earlier today projected confidence. Do you have the votes for Speaker locked in tomorrow? I think we're going to have a good day tomorrow. Allies of the Republican leader say he will get there. They point out that there still is not a remotely serious or credible alternative to him. But Virginia Republican Congressman Bob Good, one of the five hard no votes against McCarthy, says that a new candidate will emerge after McCarthy is denied on the first ballot tomorrow. I guess we'll see. CNN's Melanie Zanona begins our coverage now with the latest on McCarthy's struggle to lock down the speakership. Do you have the speaker the vote? House Republicans bracing for a once in a century fight. Do you have the votes for speaker locked in tomorrow? I think we're going to have a good day tomorrow. After their leader, Kevin McCarthy, has struggled to lock down the speaker votes. He's worked very hard to earn the job as speaker. uh, And we'll see whether this has placated the people that uh, put out a list of demands. He's gone really right up to the line. He's conceded on virtually everything. McCarthy has given in to his critics' most hardline demands, including making it easier to topple the sitting speaker. But his opponents remain unmoved. I won't be voting for Kevin McCarthy tomorrow. He's part of the problem. He's not part of the solution. In addition to five hard no votes, another group of nine Republicans made clear they are unsatisfied with McCarthy's promises. Writing in a new letter, thus far, there continue to be missing specific commitments with respect to virtually every component of our entreaties. The drama threatening to paralyze business in the House 
and overshadow the GOP's new majority. Kevin McCarthy has his own problems, and we'll see if he actually becomes a speaker or not. Uh, you know, obviously, Republicans are in complete disarray right now in trying to get their leadership house in order. McCarthy is still projecting confidence, with boxes from his office being moved into the speaker suite and McCarthy vowing not to go down without a fight. Are you prepared to make more concessions in exchange for more support? Uh, I hope you all have a very nice New while his allies acknowledge the tough road ahead. I'm confident he can pull these final votes together. It's not an easy job. It isn't easy being speaker these days, but Kevin McCarthy, I believe, can unite us. And if McCarthy can't get the votes on Tuesday, no one knows what happens next. But there's speculation that another candidate could jump into the race. I think you'll see on the second ballot uh, an increasing number of members vote for uh, a true uh, candidate who can represent the conservative center of the conference, can motivate the base, inspire Republicans across the country, get country, get to 218 votes, bring our conference together. Now, Kevin McCarthy is still in talks with his opponents today. Sources tell CNN that he is still working to get those votes. But the expectation is that Kevin McCarthy has no plans to step aside, even if it's clear tomorrow that he does not have the support. That is a contrast from 2015 when Kevin McCarthy dropped out of the speaker's race when it was clear that he did not have the votes. And so it is looking increasingly likely that the speaker's race is going to go to multiple ballots tomorrow. Jake. All right, Melanie Zanona on Capitol Hill for us. Thanks. Later this hour, President Biden is returning to a politically reshaped Washington, D.C. on the era Uh, the eve of a new era of divided government. But the president is embracing bipartisanship with plans to travel this week to a Kentucky event with top Republican officials, including the Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. CNN Chief White House correspondent Phil Manningly joins us now. Phil, what does this event with McConnell represent for President Biden? You know, Jake, I think White House officials are keenly aware that partisan warfare will very much be a part of the new Washington the president returns to from his winter vacation with that House Republican majority. But they also believe, and I think this event on Wednesday helps underscore the idea that both with what they accomplished in their first two years, several major bipartisan pieces of legislation, and what they think will be overlap with certain Senate Republicans in particular in the years ahead, they can highlight the idea that the president still wants to pursue and still sees openings for bipartisanship but they're also very cognizant of the split screen that this event on Wednesday with Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, which with Republican Governor Mike DeWine, as well as Democrats Andy Beshear of Kentucky and Sherrod Brown of Ohio, helps kind of illuminate. And that is the idea that while the House and House Republicans are very much kind of devolving into their own intra-party circus, they are holding up bipartisanship results and opportunities to do more things in the future. That is a split screen. That is a contrast that White House officials will take every single day of the week and one that they will be seeking to highlight, not just this week, but in the weeks ahead, Jake. All right, Phil Manningly at the White House for us. Thanks so much. Let's discuss with former Republican Congressman Charlie Dent of Pennsylvania. Congressman, good to see you. As we heard, these Republicans, five say they are dead set opposed to McCarthy. Nine others say uh, they're unsatisfied with him despite the concessions he made. Those nine wrote yesterday, despite some progress achieved, Mr. McCarthy's statement comes almost impossibly late to address continued deficiencies ahead of the opening of the 118th Congress on January 3rd. How real is this threat, do you think? Do you really think it's possible that Kevin McCarthy will not be the next speaker? Well, I think the threat is real, and I think it's possible he will not be the next speaker. Now, between now and the first vote tomorrow, he may get some of these fellows back into the fold. But I kind of doubt it right now. I mean, it seems like they're going to go to the first ballot and he's not going to be successful. That's what it looks like right now. He's made concessions. He's appeased these hardliners only to have them move the goalposts further on him. 
I think that some of the opposition to Kevin McCarthy from some of these guys is personal and maybe a bit geographic. Maybe they don't want a Californian speaker, but they don't have an alternative. Uh, but I don't know who they would support. Maybe Steve Scalise, maybe Patrick McHenry. Maybe they want Jim Jordan. I don't know. But it appears they don't have a they can't unite behind a horse. But again, we've always had this rejectionist wing within the House Republican conference. I would not. I was there for it. I saw it. I mean, they weren't for things. They were just against things. In this case, they're against Kevin McCarthy. And I don't know what he can do for them. They're the five never Kevin votes. And then now you have these other nine who have become public with their objections uh, to the most recent concession. So I don't know how he gets all these folks back. It's going to be a very interesting and dramatic day tomorrow, Jake. Yeah, and that's 14 as of now, if we're reading those tea leaves, uh, 14 no votes. He can only afford to lose four. He can't afford 14. And those opposing McCarthy include, we should note, uh, for the, anybody at home wondering, include uh, such members of Congress as Paul Gosar, Scott Perry, they signed on to that letter, also Bob Good and Andy Biggs and Matt Gates, and, and for folks who are not uh, familiar with this group, here are the hard no, Andy Biggs, Matt Gates, Ralph Norman, Bob Good, and, and Matt Rosendale, we, we should point, these are very, very far, far right congressmen. That's correct, Jake. And the other thing we have to remember, too, whatever concessions McCarthy is making to the hardliners, and let's assume they agree to these concessions and he gets 218 votes. Well, the next vote will be on the rules package. Now, if I were, if I were still in the House and advising my more moderate, pragmatic colleagues, I'd say, you know what? You know, we'll move the goalposts, too. We're not going to agree to these rules changes, period. And that's another fight they're going to have to have. I can't imagine every Republican is going to agree to this rule to make it easier to vacate the chair, that is to remove the speaker if five folks, uh, five members object. So if I were if I were a more pragmatic or moderate member, I don't know that I would agree to these concessions that are being made in order to get the 218 votes from the most hardline extreme members of the conference. Motion to vacate didn't used to be that big a deal. Uh, Nancy Pelosi removed it, I think, in 2019 when she became uh, the speaker yeah. for the second time. Uh, but before that, it existed. And members of Congress, Correct. speakers of the House were just able to deal with it because it just wasn't taken very seriously, uh, or they wielded power. Um, you were there in 2015, however, when Mark Meadows, then a congressman with the Freedom Caucus, used the motion to vacate that ultimately led to Republican Speaker John Boehner heading for the exits. How do you see this, this playing out? I, I don't understand how lowering this threshold will make Kevin McCarthy anything other than a, a caretaker speaker just waiting for the first time Matt Gates and his, his gang object to something. Well, it will certainly weaken him. And you mentioned 2015, Jake. Back in 2015, Mark Meadows did come to the floor with a motion to vacate. It only took one member back then. And, they, and his group was disorganized. They would not have won that vote. In fact, I remember imploring then Speaker Boehner and his staff to call the question immediately because the Freedom Caucus, who had, some of whom had, who had been behind, behind that maneuver, were not, they weren't organized. They, they were divided. And I said, call the question, further divide them, you know, throttle this little insurrection while it's in its bassinet here. And, uh, and, they didn't, and Boehner didn't want to do that. And it, because he wanted to protect his, some of his members who were going to be facing primary challenges, which I thought was ridiculous at the time. But that's what happened. And then a few months later, John Boehner did resign. So I'm curious to see what happens uh, tomorrow, because I suspect they can be going to multiple ballots. And this might not be resolved tomorrow. I mean, this could go on for some time. You know, if these five guys hold, I mean, these guys are holding their breath and they're waiting for everybody to, to turn blue. 
And they're doing a pretty good job of that right now. I mean, they are, uh, it seems like they are holding pretty firm. Now, they're probably going to have to uh, recess at some point uh, to go into a conference meeting and they'll have a beatdown session probably on some of those uh, objectors. Yeah. But it won't be easy to recess the House because the chief clerk is in charge and uh, not, not, the, uh, not a Republican speaker. So it's going to be a crazy day. Do you think that McCarthy uh, is being hoisted on his own petard in any way in the sense that many people criticize him for uh, being too complacent when it comes to the rise of this? Uh, it's not just Freedom Caucus types. It, it's, it's really more extreme right. than that when we're talking about uh, the Paul Gosars uh, of the world, right? So uh, has he yeah. been so complacent that ultimately he led enough of these People into the into the conference didn't object when they defeated, for instance, Denver Riggleman in a in a in a convention in Virginia, uh, and now they're coming after him. Well, I think he's empowered too many of them, or they feel empowered anyway. And my advice to these Republican speakers, from Boehner to Ryan, now would my, my advice to McCarthy would always be: Look, you have to marginalize these figures as much as you can. If that means going to the Democrats and saying, "Hey, we need votes on a particular bill." And maybe in this case for the speaker, you know, cut a deal with the Democrats. Um, that might be the only way out of this uh, if they can't get 218 Republican votes for the speaker. But that's the way you deal with that crowd. You have to marginalize them and you go cut the and Republicans need to basically make agreements with the Democrats until the Democrats won't make agreements with them anymore. That's how you deal with them. You don't keep moving the keep moving the conference to the right to take care of them to pass bills that they know have no chance of passing a Senate controlled by Democrats or Republicans for that matter. So I don't understand why, you know, why they continue this game of appeasement of these 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 rejectionist members who really aren't going to help him in terms of governing on things like the debt ceiling or funding the government. They're just not going to be there to help him. I mean, they take a I always felt that the Republican leadership took too much advice, House Republican leadership, too took too much advice and guidance from these people who weren't voting for the bills. Yeah. All right, former Republican Congressman Charlie Dent from the Great Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, good to see you. Thank you. Look for special coverage of what will be an exciting vote for House Speaker tomorrow at noon Eastern right here on CNN. Ahead here on the lead, brand new documents released from the January 6th committee, including text messages showing what Trump insiders were saying to each other in real time during and after the Capitol riot. But first, those tragic Idaho college killings, the behavior change noticed by people who knew the suspect And in New York, the man accused of attacking police with a machete. The disturbing find, police say, was in that suspect's diary. In our national lead, the suspect in the University of Idaho student killings is due in court tomorrow in Pennsylvania. He is expected to not fight efforts to bring him back to Idaho to face four counts of murder in those mid-November deaths of four students. Police say they found the alleged killer through DNA evidence and more, CNN's Veronica Miracle has the latest from Moscow, Idaho. Brian Koberger, the 28-year-old graduate student in criminology at Washington State University, is expected to return to Idaho to face four counts of first-degree murder. His arrest comes almost seven weeks after the stabbing deaths of four University of Idaho college students, one of the victim's families reacting today. It's a little bit of hope. Uh... Things are moving in the right direction. Um, there was a lot of time of not knowing because they had to do 
everything to, um, you know, monitor this individual. Police say they started zeroing in on Koberger using DNA evidence just before Christmas. An FBI surveillance team tracked him for four days before he was arrested in Pennsylvania. Police haven't disclosed a motive, found a murder weapon, or offered any other details about the suspect except the schools he attended. We have a job to do. We continue to do it. Now, police are starting to piece together DNA evidence and events leading up to the stabbings, including the suspect's Hyundai Elantra, like this one, spotted near the crime scene. After combing through nearly 20,000 tips, police continue to appeal to the public. Now we're at a new point. Now we know who um, we're looking at. We want information on that individual. We want that updated information so that we can start building that picture now. The killings traumatizing two college communities, the University of Idaho and Washington State University, just nine miles apart. Samuel Newton teaches criminal law at the University of Idaho. This has been a community on edge, a community stressed. My student, It's reflected in my students and in my classroom. Koberger was arrested on Friday, according to officials at this Pennsylvania house. His attorney telling CNN the suspect's father went to Washington state and drove him across the country to Pennsylvania, arriving before Christmas. The Koberger family issued a statement saying in part, there are no words that can adequately express the sadness we feel and saying we will love and support our son and brother. At Washington State University, student Hayden Stinchfield says he was alarmed when he realized the man charged in the murders was one of his teachers. Teacher's assistance. It was just like totally jarring, totally shocking to realize that this person that had been, you know, kind of grading my papers was, you know, allegedly this like horrible murderer. And Jake, when asked about the Koberger family statement, Steve Gonsalves says he thought it was well written. He said he has no ill will towards the family. He said he has four other children of his own. He knows this has not been easy for anyone. He goes a step further by saying he agrees with the Kobergers that Brian is innocent until proven guilty. Jake. All right, Veronica Miracle in Moscow, Idaho. Thanks so much. Also in our national lead today, new details on the suspect in the New Year's Eve machete attack on three New York City police officers near Times Square. Police say the suspect is an Islamist extremist who wanted to join the Taliban. He was well known to authorities, they say, and left behind a diary that shows he did not expect to still be alive right now. Let's bring in CNN's Shimon Prokopes in New York. And Shimon, this attack played out very close to crowds gathered for the New New Year's Eve countdown. Yeah, well, actually, Jake, we're standing right in the area where this happened. This is along 8th Avenue, which is just outside of Times Square, where actually thousands of people were gathered trying to get inside Times Square, trying to get inside here, Jake, through the security barriers here. Let me just show you that this is where the security barriers were set up for people to go inside Times Square. You can see, Jake, there was a sign here telling people what they can and cannot bring inside Times Square. It is here where police say the the man with this knife attacked the three officers coming up to them, pulling out this large knife and attacking them. The knife, Jake, was found right here on this corner after police shot him. The 19-year-old accused of attacking three NYPD officers with a machete on New Year's Eve, now facing two charges of attempted murder of a police officer and two charges of attempted assault in connection to the attack. The charges come two days after chaos erupted just outside Times Square Saturday night. Moments after, police say Trevor Bickford attacked the officers with a machete near a security screening zone to enter the Times Square celebration. Investigators seeking information on his phone and online activities. 
as well as searching his family home in Wells, Maine on Sunday. Just kind of hard to believe. I was just shocked, you know. Meanwhile, more is being learned about the suspect. Multiple law enforcement sources tell CNN Bickford's mother and grandmother grew concerned after he said he was willing to die for his religion and wanted to travel overseas to help fellow Muslims. They contacted police on December 10th. The teenager was interviewed by FBI agents in mid-December, the FBI placing him on a terrorist watch list, according to sources. Investigators believe Bickford arrived in New York on Thursday via Amtrak. Those travels not tripping any watch list databases. And checked into a hotel on Manhattan's Lower East Side. On Saturday, he checked out, carrying a bag that authorities say he'd later discarded, containing a handwritten diary in which he expressed his desire to join the Taliban in Afghanistan and die as a martyr. Bickford also wrote it in the diary on New Year's Eve, quote, this will likely be my last entry, and left instructions for his last will and testament. That evening, he traveled to Times Square and, according to police, approached a checkpoint where officers checked bags for weapons or suspicious items. Unprovoked, a 19-year-old male approached an officer and attempted to strike him over the head with a machete. The male then struck two additional officers in the head with the machete. One of the officers fired their service weapon, striking the subject in the shoulder. All three officers have been released from the hospital and are being hailed as heroes. Truly impressive to see what they do every day, and even more impressive to see how they respond in times of emergency. And Jake, we still have a lot more to learn. Certainly, we expect an arraignment at some point of the suspect who still remains in the hospital. And then the big question is whether or not the FBI, whether or not the U.S. Attorney's Office is going to charge him as well. That still remains uh, to be seen. We haven't heard much from authorities. Besides that press conference that they held early Sunday morning or after New Year's Eve, we've not heard anything from them. They've not really answered any questions. So we still have yet to learn exactly what exactly the FBI here did, what exactly uh, they learned, and what they did with that information. So still a lot of questions, certainly, as we await the arraignment uh, of, this, uh, of this suspect, and certainly whether or not he's going to be cha- facing any federal charges, Jake. All right, Shimon Prokopez in New York City, thank you so much. Coming up next, Russia's vow after one of the deadliest strikes on its own forces since they invaded Ukraine nearly one year ago. Stay with us. In the world lead, new video showing the aftermath of one of the deadliest days for Russian forces almost a year since that country invaded Ukraine. A Ukrainian rocket strike on Russian forces blew up ammunition stored at a vocational school in eastern Ukraine. Ukraine's military claims the strike killed upwards of 400 Russian troops. But as CNN's Ben Wiedemann reports, the Kremlin strongly disputes that number. A Russian army barracks reduced to rubble. In the first hours of 2023, Ukraine's army delivered one of the war's deadliest strikes, killing scores of Russian conscripts stationed in the occupied city of Makivka in eastern Donetsk. Moscow said 63 died here, but the Ukrainians claim the death toll is much higher. Some military bloggers in Russia are outraged, asking why troops were allegedly housed next to a stash of ammunition which exploded under fire. The daring assault came after Russian missiles hit the Ukrainian capital at the start of the New Year holiday. Kyiv's mayor said that two people were killed and many others wounded Saturday when rockets hit a hotel in residential neighborhoods. 
a new reminder, if needed, that this war threatens Ukrainian lives far from the front line. Many in Kyiv spent the last day of 2022 sheltering in metro stations and underpasses. Others put on a brave face to venture out. I guess this is how they congratulate us with the new year, Veronica Kulehina said. We were very close to where the first explosion happened. It was very frightening. Added Sergi Tolerator, shelling people on this day is nothing but villainous. They're just animals. Russian shelling continued Sunday, hitting a children's hospital in the southern city of Kherson, according to local officials. And Monday, Kyiv faced its third straight day of attacks as more than three dozen drones were launched overnight at the capital. The Ukrainian military says they intercepted 39 of them, but the falling debris causing damage and injury. And already Russian politicians are looking for someone to blame for that deadly Ukrainian attack on Russian forces in Makivka. The head of the A Just Russian Party is calling for what he's call, calling higher authorities to be held responsible for the fact that so many Russian troops were in an unprotected building completely without any sort of air defenses. Jack? Ben Wiedemann, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Uh, coming up, the overwhelming response in Brazil right now to pay respects to a giant in the sports world known simply by his nickname, Pele. Stay with us. In our faith lead now, remembering Pope Benedict. Today began three days of Benedict the 16th, lying in state inside St. Peter's Basilica following the 95-year-old's death on Saturday. CNN's Vatican correspondent Delia Gallagher reports on the mix of people in Rome now to pay their respects. At 7 a.m., they were here in the hundreds, but each hour, the line to visit the body of Benedict XVI inside St. Peter's Basilica grew. By 7 p.m., closing time, some 65,000 had passed through, according to Vatican police. Some, despite not agreeing with everything Benedict did, came anyway. In reality, I thought he could have continued a bit longer. Then he chose to abandon, but we remember him regardless. Others were unexpected fans. He's a great man. It's strange to see him, a man who is very charismatic in my opinion. For tourists who just happened to be in Rome, it was a novel experience. <laughs> Morbid, actually. <laughs> quiet. Very quiet. Very quiet. Solemn. The line moved fairly swiftly once inside. In fact, people barely had a chance to stop and say a prayer. The seating area reserved for VIP visitors only. So I've just come out from St. Peter's Basilica. It might seem like a little bit of a strange thing to go in and see the body of a pope, but this is a Vatican tradition. This is something that they do really for the people in order for them to be able to come here and pay their last respects. To be sure, the first day of Pope Benedict's body lying in state was very different from his predecessor, John Paul II, in 2005. When hundreds of thousands nearly burst down the barriers to get into St. Peter's. But that was a different time and a very different pope. A superstar, John Paul II, who lived out his final suffering years before the world's cameras. And a reserved Benedict XVI, who resigned well before his health began to decline. 
And perhaps the crowds today were a mirror of that man they had come to see, quiet and respectful of the rituals of tradition. And Jake, Thursday is the funeral. It's the first time in modern history, at least, that we will have a funeral mass for a pope said by a pope. And of course, this ends this unique era of two living popes. You have to think about Pope Francis at this point, who spent the, best, the first 10 years of his pontificate with another pope just behind him. It's a new start for him as well. Jake? All right, Delia Gallagher in Rome for us. Thank you so much. Now to Brazil, you're watching... Tens of thousands of mourners paying their respects to Pelé, the man soccer fans called the king. Today's public wake is at the Santos Football Club, where Pelé dominated the sport for almost 20 years. He died last week at age 82 after battling colon cancer. He won his first World Cup at 17, went on to win two more, and scored nearly 1,300 career goals. CNN's Stefano Pozzaban is in Santos, Brazil, at the stadium. And Stefano, what are uh, mourners telling you about the soccer legend? Well, it's striking, Jake. I think that history is giving us uh, the possibility, the privilege to see these uh, two wakes uh, in Rome and here in Brazil going on at the same time because here Pelé was really considered a priest of the game, a pontiff of the game and over the past couple of days we really had the privilege to speak with somebody who knew him by name and what they've been telling us, they've been telling us all day, is that Pelé will never die. Pelé will always be next to our heart. He's now in the sky. He will keep playing football just because he really transcended the game of soccer and, and really came and spoke to so many people in their hearts uh, here in Brazil uh, and so that's why they feel this is a just a goodbye to the body of a friend but he will always be with us and uh, it's true like over the last uh, few hours at least 20,000 people have been passing just behind my back to pay their respect uh, very solemnly very quietly. It's a stadium, but we don't have any cheering, we don't have any chants, we don't have any fans. It's just uh, solemnly paying respect uh, in a ceremony. Jake. And, and amazingly, Pelé is survived by his 100-year-old mother. What, if anything, is her role in the funeral? Well, what, from what we understand, tomorrow morning uh, the uh, coffin will leave the casket, will leave uh, the stadium, and it will be a funeral cortege around the historic uh, places in the city of Santos that he used to, to go to. One of them is, of course, uh, the um, the house of uh, his mother, who will be able to say one last farewell from her house before going to the cemetery where Pelé will be laid to rest uh, in a private ceremony. Other places are, for example, a bakery that he used to go on uh, or uh, his favorite barbershop, because really you breathe his presence uh, in the city, in particular in Santos, which is the city where he played the most beautiful soccer in history. Jake? All right. Stefano Posavon in Brazil, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, a status check on the busiest day of post-Christmas air travel. And what do you do if your flight was canceled? Stay with us. In our money lead, Southwest Airlines passengers affected by that airline's disastrous holiday meltdown are are still trying to get their money and their stranded luggage back. CNN's Pete Montine is at Reagan National Airport for us just outside D.C. Pete, has Southwest fully recovered or even partially recovered from last week's mess? 
Southwest has recovered from last week's meltdown, Jake, but travelers are not fully out of the woods just yet. Look at the departures and arrivals board here at Reagan National Airport. We've seen the delays go up throughout the day. In fact, the FAA says there is a computer problem at one of its big air traffic control centers in Miami. That is causing flight delays going into Florida up to two hours. So far, so good today for Southwest Airlines. Cancellations have remained relatively low, about 160, according to FlightAware, just checked it nationwide by Southwest Airlines. That pales in comparison to the big numbers we saw of last week, 2,000, even 3,000 cancellations per day during the peak of that meltdown last week. Travel experts say right now it is really important for Southwest to issue those refunds to passengers. But I want you to listen now to workers who say that Southwest really needs to repair that back-end infrastructure that caused all these problems in the first place in order to fully repair its reputation. Listen. I think uh, initially it's going to cause some damage, of course, a lot of upset people not getting to their uh, Christmas plans, which is one of the most important days of the year. So totally, uh, completely understandable that they're going to be upset. Um, I do encourage them, though, to give us a shot, another shot. Um, I think we're going to end up fixing this uh, going forward. Um, you know, it, it does take a pretty, a very large weather event to make this happen. And the union, uh, the pilots union is uh, definitely going to be pressing the company very hard on making uh, sure things get fixed. This is how you get your money back from Southwest Airlines if you need a refund. Southwest.com slash travel disruption. There you put in your name and your confirmation number. You can also upload receipts if you incurred any extra expenses when you had to change your travel plans because of a cancellation. There is still a lot of problems with bags when it comes to getting them back to passengers who lost them. This is the pile here at Reagan National Airport. In fact, these are letters A through N. There's another pile across the way. We've seen big piles of unclaimed bags not only here, but also across the country. El Paso, even as far away as Oakland, Jake. All right, Piemontina at Reagan National, thanks so much. Let's bring in Brian Kelly. He created the popular travel website called The Points Guy. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. So the reimbursement process for th- Southwest seems, if you go on the website, rather easy, uh, although good luck getting through by phone. What should people do if they still have not heard back from Southwest about a potential refund? Well, I would give it a little bit of time. They've got seven business days in order to respond. And we've had writers at the Points Guy who were impacted, and they surprisingly got pretty quick resolution. So I wouldn't waste a lot of your time following up right away. Give it at least a week. Um, But I I am confident that they're going to be pretty generous with their uh, compensation. So Southwest uh, is known for a lot of things. One of them is a very loyal customer base. Um, Are they gone? Did they destroy that? No, you know, U.S. travelers especially, I mean, we are very uh, much focused uh, in the short, you know, in the short term, people are going to forget about this. You know, Southwest, they certainly burned a lot of bridges this holiday season. People will remember it. But let's also remember this past summer, you know, American Airlines had a meltdown. Spirit had their meltdown, JetBlue. So it's been a little bit of a game of hot potato with all the airlines melting down. And frankly, in the U.S., there just aren't that many choices uh, for consumers when it comes to flying. And Southwest still gives those two free check bags, which, you know, their flyers really love. Well, so that's that, that's really the question. Can can American flyers avoid cancellations uh, in, you know, in any reasonable way around busy travel periods? I mean, do people need to go as yeah. far as to book two or three flights and hope one of them actually takes off? Well, you know, if you really need to get somewhere, this is where I use frequent flyer miles. If, even if I buy a ticket on one airline, I use my points on another airline as a backup later in the day if I really have to get there. Because most frequent flyer programs let you cancel free of charge up until departure. 
So if you really have to get to a wedding or something, you know, always try to leave in advance as possible. But, you know, but, I, you know, for most people, booking multiple reservations is not uh, realistic. But, you know, with weather patterns, our uh, whole aviation system is fragile as it is. There's going to be speed bumps to come in 2023. Well, that's the other thing is that because of COVID and the pandemic and, and uh, you know, all the flight restrictions, et cetera, there weren't a lot of flight cancellations because there weren't a lot of flights. Now that people are starting to travel again, more people are vaccinated, we're living with COVID. Uh, should we expect more flight cancellations and delays this year? Is this what the what normal looks like? Absolutely. You know, weather events are, you know, catastrophic. I highly recommend to people, you know, book on a credit card that offers flight disruption or delay coverage. A lot of the big credit cards that chase sapphires out there automatically include that coverage. So the next time you book a flight, know the coverage on your credit card. Uh, the DOT does have the dashboard for airlines, what they owe you. But in general, in the U.S., <laughs> passengers don't have rights. And until we uh, press our lawmakers to have consumer protections like they have in Europe, uh, it's kind of every flyer for themselves. But using a credit card with protections is key. All right, Brian Kelly, founder of The Points Guy. Thanks so much. Good to see you. Coming up next, brand new documents released by the January 6th committee, including text messages from Trump White House aides who said they felt unemployable after January 6th. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Taver. This hour, the suspect in the murder of four college students is set to return to Idaho to face charges. This, as we learn, his dad drove with him cross-country in the same car, a white Hyundai Elantra, that police say may have been at the scene of the crime. Plus... Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, sworn in for a second term. CNN's Caitlin Collins sits down with the Democrat and talks about her 2024 plans. And leading this hour, as it prepares to shut down permanently tomorrow, the January 6th committee is posting a treasure trove of investigatory materials online, ranging from witness transcripts to private text messages to White House call logs. The logs give a more detailed picture about who Donald Trump spoke with right around the time he was pushing the Secretary of State of Georgia to, quote, find enough votes for him to win that state that he had lost. CNN's Sarah Murray dives into this latest batch of transcripts and evidence. The January 6th committee officially shutting down today. The select committee stands adjourned. Blasting out another round of transcripts and evidence on the way out. The latest trove revealing some specific questions the committee had for Trump's former White House chief of staff. This is about Donald Trump and about actually going after him once again. Investigators wanted to ask about a December 2020 email where Mark Meadows says Donald Trump tapped Rudy Giuliani to lead his post-election legal fight, according to one transcript. Rudy was put in charge. That was the president's decision, the email said. But while Meadows shared documents with the committee, he backed out of his deposition, just one of the roadblocks investigators faced. When it came to former Trump attorney Kenneth Cheesebro, one of the alleged architects of the fake electors plot. Donald J. Trump of the state of Florida, number of votes, 11. Ken Chesbro had written a memo about electors. He invoked his Fifth Amendment right or executive privilege to avoid answering the bulk of the committee's questions. More details also emerging about Trump's activities ahead of January 6th. After this December exchange between Republican National Committee Chair Ronna Romney McDaniel and Trump, What did the president say when he called you? He turned the call over to Mr. Eastman, who then proceeded to talk about the importance of the RNC helping the campaign gather 
these contingent electors. Trump called again on January 1st. I do have a recollection of him asking me what my relationship was with the vice president. And I said I didn't know him very well, McDaniel said in her transcript. She couldn't recall if they discussed Pence's role in certifying the Electoral College vote. But after the Capitol was attacked, Trump told her privately that Pence had the authority to not accept the electors. Another former close aide to Trump. We were damaging his legacy. Offering a glimpse into the despair Trump staffers felt about their employment prospects after the riot. Hope Hicks telling Ivanka Trump's chief of staff in text messages January 6th they will be perpetually unemployed. In one day, he ended every future opportunity that doesn't include speaking engagements at the local Proud Boys chapter, Hicks says. I'm so mad and upset. We all look like domestic terrorists now. Now, also in this document dump is a letter from the committee to White House counsel uh, basically saying, you know, we know that you provided some witnesses who provided testimony. We agreed not to release their identity. Well, we no longer have control over these materials. We can't ensure the confidentiality of these witnesses, and we share concerns for their safety, security, and reputations, Jake. All right, Sarah Murray, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Joining us now to discuss former White House Communications Director under Trump and CNN political analyst Alyssa Farrah Griffin. Uh, Alyssa, thanks for joining us. Before we get into your interview with the committee, the transcript was released a few days ago, I, I want to get your reaction um, to what Sarah Murray just said. The-, the-, the committee telling the White House that they're worried that when Republicans take control of the House, White House personnel, these are career employees, not political appointees, presumably, witnesses whose identities were protected could be revealed by House Republicans. Do, do you think that that's a legitimate fear? It's a very legitimate fear, um, and it's astonishing, and it's something that any Republicans um, in Congress who, you know, care about the the credibility of oversight going forward need to oppose. Um, This would be people like valets, secret service agents, people who worked within the the resident of the White House that may have provided details that were important to the investigation of the committee. And they were simply just, you know, complying, whether voluntarily or with subpoenas. And as we've talked about many times, Jake, those of us who testified to the committee, we faced harassment, we faced threats, and it's opening these private citizens up to that, which they never signed up for. You told the committee in your, testify, in your testimony um, this about former White House Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany. You wrote, quote, I'm a Christian woman, so I will say this. Kaylee is a liar and an opportunist. I wish her the best, but she's, made, she's a smart woman. She's a Harvard law grad. This is not an idiot. She knew we lost the election, but she made a calculation that she wanted to have a certain life post-Trump that required staying in his good graces, and that was more important to her than telling the truth to the American public, unquote. Um, would you put a majority of, of your fellow White House uh, staffers uh, and officials in, in that category? Or was Kaylee McEnany a, a standout in that respect? Listen, it was, it, was, it was hard to read that back to hear it and to say it when I did, but it was the truth. Um, listen, silence is one thing. Uh, people who are in the White House not themselves speaking up against the election lies. That's, that's shameful. It's not a good thing. But it is far worse to amplify the lies that led to January 6th and that have taken hold in this country in such a dangerous way. So I hold those um, who push those lies, um, especially who I believe knew better, in a different category than those who merely remain silent. And something I keep going back to and just kind of reflecting, you know, two years after the fact of January 6th is 
if doing the right thing was easy, more people would do it. But so many people sat on the sidelines and just decided someone else might speak out and do the right thing. Someone else might step in and stop this violence in real time. Kaylee, others had massive platforms. They had massive public profiles that they could have used that day to hopefully try to stop the violence. But in the months and years that followed to stop this just insidious lie that's consumed the Republican Party that the 2020 election was stolen when, in fact, it, of course, was not. Yeah, no, I mean, she has a huge platform on a different channel. uh, And she, as far as I can tell, doesn't use it to to correct the record. Um, Texts between... Hope Hicks, another White House aide, and former Ivanka Trump Chief of Staff Julie Radford reveal how upset they were with Trump's actions on that day. This is private communication, not stuff that they've said publicly. Hicks tested Radford, quote, we all look like domestic terrorists now, adding, quote, this made us all unemployable. She also texted, quote, not being dramatic, but we're all effed. Alyssa, meaning you, looks like a genius. Now, that that text was referencing, my guess is, your resignation about a month before the insurrection. What went through your mind when you saw that? Well, listen, when I stepped down in December, um, it was, of course, I was thinking about my future prospects, but it was first and foremost because I was uncomfortable tying my name and my integrity to this lie that was being spread by the campaign and by some White House officials. Listen, I think there was a lot of self-preservation going on uh, by folks in the Trump orbit. It still is to this day, um, to this day. But I would also note Um, especially Hope, she knows President Trump very well. She knows that if you cross him, it comes with, again, threats, harassment, and being maligned. So I think there's also an intimidation factor that has contributed to more people not speaking out and telling the truth about what they know about him. And I just want to note what's been so masterful about the January 6th committee is they've gotten all these people in their own voices, on camera, you know, talking about how they really felt about him. And I thought it was very notable that Hope called it what it was, domestic terrorism. That's important. I'm glad that she said that. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, testified uh, about unflattering opinion articles written about Trump by former flag officers, generals and and admirals. Uh, In in referring to one of those former officials, Milley says Trump and his aides asked Milley to, quote, bring him back on active duty, court-martial him, you know, make him walk the plank sort of thing, right? I advised them not to do that. That's just deranged. I mean, that is the behavior of a tyrant. Um, Does it surprise you? No, and, and I worked with Chairman Milley at the Department of Defense, and I'm grateful that he was constantly this, this block, this roadblock against these terrible instincts by the former president. But it just goes to show Donald Trump does not even understand the U.S. military that he oversaw, which is right now the most diverse force that's ever been in history, ideologically, racially, religiously. This idea that, you know, somebody who's in the military shouldn't be able to criticize him is absurd. That's something you would expect to see in the Kremlin, not in the United States. And it's just, you know, another dot to remember in the long and long list of things that make him so unqualified to ever hold office again. You told the committee uh, that the CIA director at the time, Gina Haspel, had a, quote, suicide pact with the entire intelligence community if Trump actually fired her. You don't mean that literally, but you mean career-wise, that that if if he he fired her, that others would resign. You say um, Trump tried to fire her, but he backed out almost immediately and, quote, allegedly for about 14 minutes, Cash Patel was actually the CIA director. Now, there's no public record of that, but that is absolutely terrifying. Cash Patel was the acting CIA director for about 14 minutes? 
Well, and I want to be clear, this was anecdotal, but I heard it from very senior officials who I I trust um, that this took place. And because so many officials within the IC and the national security community knew what Donald Trump was capable of and how how he just fundamentally didn't understand his role and their role— They had these packs and these alliances in place to make sure that the incredible, important work that they do couldn't just be stopped on his political whims. So this, in the final days, it was a very, very scary time in the intel community as well as the Department of Defense. We obviously saw he installed a loyalist at DOD. He installed cash actually ultimately at DOD. Um, But even within the CIA, and it was someone like Gina Haspel that was able to stop that and other officials within the NSA and um, DIA and other places, that my understanding has stopped it from happening, which could have been crippling to our intelligence gathering all over the world. Yeah, Millie testified about uh, a rescue operation uh, that Cash and some others said, oh, yeah, we got approval from the other country for a flyover, and they hadn't. That could have been disastrous. Who knows what would have happened? There was a clear pattern in your interview with the committee about Trump's chief of staff, uh, Mark Meadows. Uh, Here's one little bit. Quote, sometimes Meadows would be an ally and would help, like, stop certain things. But then other times he would either be just non-existent, injecting bleach, for example. Like, he's, I've got this, I've got this, and then it ended up going forward. I never saw evidence that he really pushed back on the president. You also told the committee you tried to get Trump to walk back when he said, when the looting starts, the shooting starts, which, which is a tweet he sent a few days after George Floyd was killed by police and there were protests. He refused. Was there anyone that Trump actually listened to? Was there anyone that could actually say to him, Mr. President, this is a horrible idea. If you do this, you're damaging the country. If you're doing this, you're damaging national security. Do not do this. So anyone like that that he listened to? Honestly, in, in reviewing my testimony and when I gave it, not that comes to mind. There were people, I mentioned Robert O'Brien as someone who I found to give him sound counsel. Many folks at agencies did, but nobody could truly change his mind. And I mean, that was exemplified, obviously, on the events leading up to January 6th. I tried to, in my testimony, give as many concrete examples to sort of show what I meant. And in the injecting bleach story, which has become, you know, infamous now, just goes to show that even the White House chief of staff couldn't stop a briefing like that from going forward and leading to this horrifying moment that will go down in history as one of the worst White House press briefings. Um, But then, of course, much, much worse was the days leading up to January 6th, where we were told, oh, we won't let this person get in front of him. We're not going to let these lies get in front of Donald Trump. And yet they somehow still ended up in the Oval Office. So that's why I reserve some of my harshest, frankly, criticism for Mark Meadows. Yeah. Alyssa Farrah Griffin, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Coming up, it's down to the wire for Kevin McCarthy's dream of being Speaker of the House. And it's still not clear that he has the magic number of votes to become the Speaker. And Avengers star Jeremy Renner is critically injured after a snowplow accident, the latest on his condition ahead. In our politics lead, some 11th hour scrambling from House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy, who's trying to line up enough votes to win election as Speaker of the House. There are a handful of far-right holdouts, and they warn they will not support him during tomorrow's vote. McCarthy is hoping to seal the deal by making several concessions to these hardliners over rules changes, including lowering the number of votes needed to trigger a vote on getting rid of the Speaker himself. CNN's Manu Raju, the chief congressional correspondent for CNN, is live on Capitol Hill. Manu, are those concessions having any effect on the members who have publicly announced their opposition or at least skepticism to them? I think the number is up to like 14 or so. 
Yeah, not at the moment. In fact, right now, Kevin McCarthy is in the Speaker's office. Even though he's not formally the Speaker, he has moved in, essentially. This is normal process. There's no placard above the Speaker's office, but he's been in there all day making phone calls. And now he's meeting with a number of allies and also some key detractors. I just saw Congressman Matt Gates, who is one of the hard nose on uh, Kevin McCarthy, walk into the office. Others who have expressed skepticism, like Congresswoman Lauren Boebert, also just walked in. And also Scott Perry, who's one of the signatories of that letter of nine members yesterday who raised concerns that the concessions that McCarthy has made so far are simply not enough. Now, the question will be, what will happen tomorrow if Kevin McCarthy is unable to secure the 218 votes he needs to win the speakership? He can only afford to lose four votes. At the moment, he could lose up to 10, maybe 14 votes. That is a prediction at the moment. Then what happens? It is uncertain. It has been a 100 years since the speaker's race has gone onto multiple ballots. And at the moment, I'm told that Kevin McCarthy has no plans to go anywhere. He's planning to grind it out on the floor, ballot after ballot after ballot, until his detractors fall in line. And also a big question is, who will be next? And talking to a number of Republicans, it is very clear that virtually nobody in the Republican conference can get to the 218 votes needed to become Speaker. So if McCarthy can't get there, can his deputy, Steve Scalise, the number two, get there? Republicans say he simply cannot, which raises even more questions about McCarthy's future and his prospects tomorrow ahead of that critical vote as he tries to make more concessions, continues to negotiate, and there's a conference of prepares to meet tomorrow morning ahead of that critical vote. Still uncertain what it will mean for the Republicans going forward as a number of Republicans concerned that it would undercut their ability to govern just as they come into power in the 118th Congress. Yep, Manu Raja on Capitol Hill. Thanks. Tomorrow is going to be exciting. Let's discuss this with our panel. And Eva, McCarthy told CNN today he thinks it's going to be a good day Tomorrow he's offered all these concessions. Uh, For people out there who are just, you know, just got back from vacation, they don't understand what's going on. What do these people want? What do these hardliners want? What is their issue with Kevin McCarthy other than he's, you know, he's a swamp creature, blah, blah, blah. Like what what, what tangibly are they looking for? Well, they have a range of issues with him. You know, some will argue that he wasn't loyal enough to the former president. Uh, Some will argue that rank and file members don't have enough power in Congress. I think that is why that 72 hour rule to review bills um, was instituted or proposed in the rules change. Um, But really, there's going to be no end to their demands, uh, even if he is uh, able to successfully pull this off. And I think that this whole episode really illustrates that, you know, you can't abandon your principles in pursuit of power because it ultimately may not work out for you in the end. We'll have to see. I think that uh, over time, these members that are challenging him might get sort of worn out by the process. Right. This could stretch on and on and on. And then uh, maybe in the final hour, he's he's able to pull it out. But I think if anyone in Washington tells you they know with certainty what's going to happen, they're lying. So uh, former Republican Congressman Charlie Dent was on the show earlier, and he said basically that he thinks that Kevin McCarthy has been offering too many concessions for too long to this wing, this MAGA wing. Uh, Not all 14 of them are that, but a lot of them are. Um, What do they want other than not Kevin McCarthy? Well, the ability for any single one of them to be able to basically call a vote of no confidence and kick, kick him out as speaker. But that's still, I, not, I mean, that's still not Kevin McCarthy. It's just like it's in the future, not just today. You know what and, I mean? And he already offered them the ability for any a group of five to say that. So they want for one person to be able to say that. The other thing that they've asked for is for leadership to not play in Republican primaries, which would also be a break from, from precedent. I think that they're essentially asking 
asking him to abandon other members of his conference at that point in order to get these votes. So he's really stuck in a rock and a hard place. And the two sides are playing a game of chicken right now and trying to, to see who will wear down first. And, and some of the demands are not ridiculous, right? Having more time to read a bill. Oh, that's, sure. That's not a ridiculous demand. No, and paying for legislation by making cuts elsewhere. This is that's. That's more mainstream, traditional Republican fare. You used to work on the Hill for the for the other side, the Democrats. Uh, what do you take? What's your take on all this? Well, normally chaos and dysfunction consumes the party heading into the minority. Right. It's consuming the party that's heading into ma- the majority right now. If you look at what's going on on the Democratic side, they had a relatively easy transfer of power from Nancy Pelosi to Hakeem Jeffries. Their signature achievement in the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, uh, capping the price of insulin at $35, happened yesterday. You don't hear a lot of people talking about challenging Joe Biden in a primary. So there's relatively stability over on in in the Democratic Party. And for the party that's heading into the majority, this was supposed to be Kevin McCarthy's week, right? They're consumed with all of this chaos and dysfunction. He may not win it in the first ballot. They've got this fraud heading into Congress who has a whole story about whether or not. Oh, Santos. You know, Congressman Santos, Santos, right. Yeah. You know, these are the two headlines that Kevin McCarthy and House Republicans are dealing with. And they also, you know, Democrats picked up a seat in the Senate. So this is not how Republicans thought they would be starting the new year. And it's, you know, a real problem for them heading into, like, trying to govern. How are they going to pass a debt ceiling? How are they going to fund the government? How are they going to do anything in the House? They're not, <laughs> simply put. I mean, look, you asked what, what do they want, these people. They want to decimate the Republican establishment as we all know it. Right. I got, I got a fundraising email today at noon from Congressman Andy Biggs saying, I need $30 donation from you, and I need four weeks in order to mount a pressure campaign against McCarthy and his type of people. Now, what's that tell me? That tells me that Biggs has not only grown in power at a time where we just really didn't think he would, but these people really believe they have that power to decimate the Republican establishment. They will not rest until it's done. They don't want a guy like McCarthy there because they think he stands for nothing. They think he'll make deals with the Democrats. Is that the worst thing? Those of us who spent time on the Hill know that's the only way that things get done. But this is what they saw Trump do. They thought that Trump stuck it to the Republican establishment. So they're doing Trump's work. They're continuing to do that. And I find it problematic because then, again, these extremists hold the power. They're holding Kevin McCarthy in the toughest place. And let's remind people who Kevin McCarthy is. I think he'll pull it off tomorrow, no doubt. But you do. I do. I do. Because let's, again, not forget who he is. He's a political animal. Sure. When Speaker Ryan was in the speakership, Ryan wanted nothing more than to be the policy guy. And he got to do all that because guess who it is right man? That was McCarthy. McCarthy was the political animal who was ready to play the dirty political games that Speaker Ryan didn't want to do. And now he's in a tough fight, but he's going to prove himself tomorrow to be the political animal he's always been known to be. But, okay, so let's assume that the nine skeptics who wrote the letter, Chip Roy, et cetera, that they come around. Okay, that's that's certainly possible. There's a reason that they're not never Kevins. They're just skeptical of Kevin. But these five, he can only afford to lose four of them. Who's going to buckle of these five? I mean, I, I, I just don't know. They are all out there. They have nothing to lose, it seems to me. I mean, other than the Republican Party. I, think they, they <laughs> I, I actually think that he wins it eventually. But for these five folks, they kind of have to, they've gone out there. I think they kind of have to push this to a second ballot and really try to at least embarrass him. Um, because after that, I mean, they're, go, they're out there. They're all out there. They're kind of all in on pushing this. So, you know, and again, like, MAGA wins here. I mean, Trump has endorsed Kevin McCarthy. But can I just say, Steve no, Democrats could have done something. Kevin. They could have gone for the jugular here and tried to flip four Republicans. Say, we'll give you something. Get in this with us. 
Democrats, again, just didn't play hardball, I feel. Mm. And I know that's me saying putting it on the Democrats, but you want to save democracy? Don't end up with a crazy well, I, I think Democrats are actually really happy watching this all play out because it's mm. literally chaos and dysfunction. This is the MAGA Republican Party on display for the American public to see. They're pretty happy with what's going on. It's a shame that this is the ruling party of, <laughs> of the House. But this is what you know people voted for. And I don't think Rep- Democrats feel any pressure to bail them out. But But isn't this exactly why Senate Republicans cut that deal with Senate Democrats to pass that giant spending bill? Because they just look at the House Republicans and they think these guys can't do anything. They can't do this. And Kevin McCarthy says that if he becomes speaker, those are the sorts of things that he'd block in the future. And when, when you talk about Democrats, I'm hearing exactly what you said from Democratic lawmakers. They say that this is evidence of the inability of the GOP's inability to govern and that this is what's going to happen for the next two years. One told me they thought this was going to metastasize. And this is what they're building their argument on for 2024 to try and take back the House of Representatives. So I don't think that you're going to see them step in and try and bail out Kevin McCarthy here. But don't you think this also just like suggests that we are going to have a government shutdown. We are going to have the debt ceiling chaos. We are going to see, I mean, all of that's, if he can't even win the speakership, 218 votes, it's pretty, with a 200, what is it, 222 votes? I mean, 218. Yeah. 218, yeah. No, but I mean, like, he has, he has a cushion yeah, of four votes. Cushion. Then how are they going to pass, like, Voting for Kevin McCarthy is nothing like voting, voting to raise the debt ceiling. That's, that's an ugly vote. <laughs> we could. I mean, it's, it certainly doesn't inspire a lot of confidence about the, the competence of our government. But I will say, I don't know, you know how many tears I shed for McCarthy because at the end of the day, I do think that it shouldn't be a coronation, right? Leaders should be challenged. Uh, I think that we have to be concerned about the people who are challenging McCarthy, but ultimately, um, you know, he should he should have to fight for the speakership. Sure, it shouldn't be coronation. Absolutely. All right. Well, we have some predictions here. You guys both think he's going to get it. We'll see what happens. I'm not so sure. Thanks to all. Coming up, how the suspect in the Idaho student murders was tracked down using a public DNA database. Stay with us. In our national lead, the suspect in the University of Idaho student killings is scheduled to be in court tomorrow in Pennsylvania, where he is expected to not fight efforts to bring him back to Idaho to face four murder charges. Today, CNN's Gene Kassar spoke with the public defender assigned to the case in Monroe County, Pennsylvania. The man who police say killed four college students, then weeks later drove cross-country tracked by police, will go back to Idaho to face charges. Detectives arrested 28-year-old Brian Christopher Kohlberger. Ethan Chapin, Zaina Carnoodle, Madison Mogan, and Kaylee Goncalves were stabbed to death November 13th in this Moscow, Idaho home. This was a very complex and extensive case. DNA was recovered at the crime scene. A source with knowledge of the investigation tells CNN the suspect was identified through genetic genealogy, a process where DNA from an investigation is compared to a public database, potentially leading to a family member of a suspect. Koberger's lawyer says his father flew to Washington State to bring him to Northeast Pennsylvania for the holidays. His father actually went out there and they drove home together. They drove his white Hyundai Elantra, A car matching that description was in the immediate area of the killings, police said. CNN confirmed they stopped at a repair shop in Pennsylvania where some work was done on the vehicle. 
I believe he arrived somewhere around the 17th of December. Jason Labar, the chief public defender from Monroe County, Pennsylvania, is representing Koberger until he is extradited. A law enforcement source says the FBI watched him for four days before he was arrested. The FBI, uh, local police, Idaho State Troopers were at their house at approximately 3 a.m. knocking on the door and announcing themselves to enter. Koberger graduated in May from DeSales University in Pennsylvania with a master's in criminal justice and was pursuing a doctorate at Washington State University only about seven miles away from the University of Idaho. He has to appreciate the seriousness of what is happening right now. Oh, absolutely. He, he is very intelligent. Uh, in my hour conversation with him, that comes off. Uh, I can tell that. Uh, and he understands where we are right now. While in college at DeSales, Koberger asked ex-cons to participate in a study. This study seeks to understand the story behind your most recent criminal offense with emphasis on your thoughts and feelings throughout your experience, he wrote on an online message board. This person that had been, you know, kind of grading my papers was, you know, allegedly this like horrible murder. Koberger was working as a teaching assistant in Washington, and one student claims his demeanor and his strict grading changed after the murders. He started grading everybody just 100s, and now obviously he seems like he was probably pretty preoccupied. For victims' families, this arrest is a step toward closure and a chance to see Koberger in court. It's a little bit of hope. Uh, things are moving in the right direction. Um, there was a lot of time of not knowing. Yeah, we're going to definitely look this guy uh, uh, and look him in his eyes. He's, he's going to have to deal with this. And the extradition proceeding will take place right here in northeastern Pennsylvania tomorrow, 3 o'clock Eastern time. And after that, it, the authorities will get him back to Idaho, where we very shortly thereafter will have his initial appearance to face those four felony counts of first-degree murder. And the chief pros, uh, public defender here in northeastern Pennsylvania did tell me that he does believe in Idaho, which has the death penalty, that this quite possibly could be a capital case. Jake. All right, Gene Casares in Monroe County, Pennsylvania. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Former Boston Police Commissioner Ed Davis joins us now. Commissioner Davis, sources tell CNN that authorities used a, a public DNA database to find potential matches between DNA found at the murder scene and then the potential family members. And, and that led to the suspect. Uh, hypothetically, how would that work? H has that happened before? Hi, Jake. Yes, it has. And it's being used more and more often. But you have to remember that this is not a definitive test. Uh, that will give you uh, sometimes a number of suspects, dozens, maybe hundreds, uh, that you have to start to filter through. And what you're looking for after you get that initial list is people who have some, some proximity to the crime or some motivation. Um, if his name popped and he was in the area, he drove an Elantra, uh, those are obviously indicators that would have the FBI concentrating on him. And then in the past, when we've run into situations like this, we would attempt to get a direct sample of DNA from the suspect. So those surveillance teams may have been doing more than just watching him. They may have been looking for discarded water bottles or other things that would produce uh, a sample that they could check to be s certain that it was in fact him. Not every uh, one of these uh, genetic uh, databases shares information willingly, willingly with uh, 
law enforcement. Uh, I use Ancestry.com. I don't think they willingly share with law enforcement. Others uh, do. Um, how, how does that work? I do too, and I, I, I think the uh, I think that information is accurate. Um, it all depends on the um, on the on the, uh, the 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 system that you're putting your DNA into, whether or not they tell you that they're going to share it, and and uh, whether you sign a release for it. And in some cases, um, when you look at that release, it might not tell you directly, uh, and then you're you're exposing your your D, your not only yourself but your family uh, to a review by by public authorities. We learned over the weekend that the suspect and his father drove across the country uh, after the killings, uh, supposedly in this Hyundai Elantra uh, that was possibly seen at the site of the the crime scene. Uh, What would you want to ask his father if you had an opportunity to? Well, I I would certainly want to ask if um, there were any uh, indications that he was feeling stressed or disoriented or uh, not paying attention to things. All of those would be indicators. Uh, he may he may have confessed. Some, sometimes people in this situation, when they feel safe with a loved one, uh, will start to talk about it. Um, I, I'm not saying that happened in this particular case, but those are things that they're going to ask the father. And also, uh, was there anything in the car that, that, that may be helpful? Trace evidence is a huge issue in a case like this. So uh, anything that was out of the ordinary would be of great interest to the investigators. Former Boston Police Commissioner Ed Davis, good to see you again, sir. Thank you so much and Happy New Year. Coming up next, the the Michigan governor weighs in on a possible presidential run and the future of her party. Stay with us. We're back in our politics lead on Sunday. Democrat incumbent Governor Gretchen Whitmer was sworn into her second term as the governor of Michigan. It is the first time in nearly 40 years that a Democratic governor will lead that king, that key swing state with a Democratic-controlled legislature. CNN This Morning anchor Caitlin Collins, who is blessing us with her presence in the studio <laughs> right now, traveled to Michigan to talk to Governor Whitmer just hours before she took the oath of office. And you talked to the governor about so much about the plot against her and also, of course, about her political future. Yeah, you spent your New Year's somewhere fun. I was in Lansing. But it was awesome because she was getting ready to be inaugurated on Sunday. And so I went to her house at 7 o'clock in the morning. She was just getting up. They were all, Her whole family was there, her two daughters, her sister Liz, her husband. And it, it was this remarkable moment, not only because of what has happened in Michigan, politically speaking, the fact that this is the first time since the 1980s that Democrats have had this majority, but it was also her first interview since the, we found out about the sentencings for these two people, the two men who basically led the plot to kidnap her, which she, as you'll hear here, she doesn't like that it's called a kidnapping plot. She thinks it's, it should be referred to as an assassination plot. Oh, absolutely, she, yeah. She weighed in and she compared it to Justice Brett Kavanaugh, but she said uh, essentially that when it comes down to this, it is really personal for her because she thinks of herself as this ordinary person. Yes, she's governor, but she's a mom. She's a sister. She's a wife. And she talked about what that was like, and she said she is very much phased by what happened to her. In recent weeks, two of the men who were essentially co-conspirators in the plot to kidnap you were sentenced, respectively one to 19 and a half years, one to 16. What did you make of that? Well, you know, I think that um, it's important to have accountability. And I filed a victim impact statement um, because I think it's important to understand I'm an ordinary person. I've got an extraordinary job. I have served in extraordinary times. But I'm a mom, 
you know, I'm a daughter. I'm a I'm a an average person who is trying to serve my state. And the heightened threats that we are now seeing rampant across this country are scary. It is important that people are held accountable. So whether it is someone harassing, you know, Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh or Congressman Fred Upton here in Michigan or me or our Attorney General or Secretary of State, it's unacceptable. And so I I was pleased to see um, the guilty verdicts and accountability. Um, But I do think it's important that people on both sides of the aisle who care more about our democracy than their political agenda uh, stand up and take it on because we cannot let these, this kind of rhetoric, this kind of violent threats continue in this country unabated. And you have said, you mentioned Justice Kavanaugh there, that it bothers you that this is so often referred to as a kidnapping plot, not an assassination plot. I think that there is a tendency to minimize um, some of these threats. And how they've been talked about, you know, there were a dozen men who plotted for months, staked out uh, my, you know, home up in northern Michigan, um, made multiple trips there, had shooting practice, all, you know, all these things they did. And they weren't planning to ransom me. They weren't going to keep me. They were planning to assassinate me. And the plot has been covered as a kidnapping plot. There was one person who showed up on, you know, a Supreme Court justice's lawn and turned himself in, and it was covered as an assassination attempt. And so I think that when you look at the facts of both of those and you see how differently they're covered, I do, you know, have concern about the language that we use, especially when women are the target as opposed to men. You already had a pretty big national profile because of the pandemic, because of the former president's criticisms of you. You have an even bigger one now, I think it's safe to say. What is your responsibility, do you think, going forward as a national leader of the Democratic Party? I think my responsibility is to to show that we can lead and that we can be successful and to build a state that is a powerhouse where people are moving to for opportunity and every person has a path to prosperity and a good quality of life. I think doing my job well is the best way that I can contribute to um, the national Democratic Party is to be able to be someone that they can point to and say, this is what happens when you elect Democrats. On 2024 overall, you often get asked about potentially running. And your answer is normally... <laughs> I just I just took my oath of office to do the job I've always wanted in circumstances that are better than I could have ever fathomed. So I'm excited to be right where I am. You said earlier you may never run for another office. You know what? When I left the legislature... Um, eight years ago, I never thought I would run for another office again. I know enough about myself to know if there is something that needs to be get need to get done, and I, there's a role I can play, I will want to play it. But I do not have plans to run for anything um, other than to spend the next four years serving this state as governor with a majority Democratic legislature for the first time in a long time, and to get a lot of good stuff done here in Michigan. Have you ever thought about what being president would be like, whether or not you'd want that job ever. I'll be very honest with you, Caitlin, I have not spent a whole lot of time thinking about that, no. But you spent some time thinking about it. Well, because people ask me, (laughs) so briefly. And what goes through your mind when you're thinking of those kinds of things? You know, I've often been asked if I might run for Congress or for the United States Senate, and it's never 
been something that I've seriously thought about because my heart and my family and my everything is right here in Michigan. Yeah, well, so I, my favorite part. So we're watching this. So people at home know. So she says, I haven't spent a lot of time. You asked her about it, running for president. She says, I haven't spent a lot of time. And I have the exact same reaction as you did in real time. Ah, so you spent some time thinking about it. You know, it's weird because the Democrats, uh, you hear a lot of talk about what after Biden, who. That's, I mean, Midwestern, I mean, success story. That, that's not one that D.C., uh, Democrats talk a lot about, but theoretically, I could see an appeal there for, for voters. It's kind of remarkable that you don't hear people talk about it more often, given the profile she has. It is massive right now. And how, look, look at how people talked about Ron DeSantis and his margin sure. on election night and yeah. how people didn't talk about hers in the same way. Uh, that's a great point about Biden, because I had lunch with someone from the Biden White House, and they were, you know, the idea of when people before were saying Biden shouldn't run before the midterms. And they were saying, well, who are they going to have run that right. they think could be effective? And she she was very interesting when she talked about 2024, saying, I don't have a plan, saying, you know, admitting she has thought about it. Right. People have asked her about because it. Because people ask her about it, right. Because uh-huh. people do ask her about it all the time. But the thing that stood out to me is she said, you know, I also said I wasn't going to run again for another uh, office after yeah. the legislature. And then, of course, she ended up running for governor. She ran twice. It is a term limit. This will be her last time being the governor. And big questions about what happens in her future after that. And she's young. And she's young. Uh, Caitlin Collins, great job. And so good to see you. Don't be a stranger. Coming up, why (laughs) drinking water could actually help you live longer. Stay with us. And our pop culture lead actor, Jeremy Renner, is in the hospital following a snow plowing accident in Reno, Nevada. Uh, Renner is known for his role as Hawkeye in the Marvel films. He's in critical but stable condition, we're told, over the past few years. Renner has posted Instagram videos of himself driving big snow plows and snow removal machines around his property near Lake Tahoe, including this one from more than a year ago. Quote, I have so much respect for Mother Earth and Mother Nature, I expect to lose the fight, but I'll always give it my best shot, he says, about battling the snow. No details have been given on the extent of Renner's injuries or how it happened. Police say he was the only person involved in the accident. Obviously, our thoughts and prayers Uh, are with him and his family. Turning now to our health lead, Uh, we know there are several health benefits to drinking water, but a new study suggests staying hydrated could actually be a lifesaver and ward off some serious ailments. Joining us now to discuss CNN's Elizabeth Cohen. Elizabeth, tell us about this new study. Jake, it's really fascinating. What they did is they followed more than 11,000 people. This is a huge study. And they did blood tests to see how hydrated they were. And what they found was that it really made a huge difference. Let's take a look at what they found. Folks who were at kind of the lower end, who were sort of on the more, uh, the less hydrated end of things, they had a 21% increased risk of premature death and up to a 64% increased risk of heart failure, diabetes, dementia, and a host of other diseases. So it really does seem to make a difference. We all know that we should stay hydrated. Here's a really good reason to begin the new year with a new resolution, which is keep drinking, preferably water. Jake? How much water are we talking about here? How much water do people need? You know, there's no one number that we can give everybody because people are different sizes. Some people live in hot climates. Uh, some people exercise more than others. But there are some rough guidelines. So let's take a look. So for women, it's nine cups per day. For men, it's 13 cups per day. That's according to a National Academy of Medicine report. But again, it's, it's different. If you exercise a lot, if you live in a hot climate, you may well need more than that. 
All right, Elizabeth Cohen, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room coming up. He will talk about the Hill fight for Kevin McCarthy's political future. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. Tweet the show at The Lead CNN. Download our podcast from whence you get your podcasts. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.